Advances in diagnostics for traumatic brain injury will soon allow us to evaluate these injuries immediately after they occur. With many of our troops facing these injuries, the United States military is making a push to accelerate development of these tools. Would these also be applicable in civilian circumstances? You are listening to ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I am your host, Dr. Mark Nolan Hill, and our guest is Dr. Jam Kachar, Clinical Professor of Neurologic Surgery at Weill Cornell Medical College and President of the Brain Trauma Foundation. The Foundation has been awarded research funding from the Department of Defense to develop a new device to expedite evaluations of brain trauma injury on the battlefield. Welcome, Dr. Gajar. Thank you. Today we are discussing influences on improving prognoses for traumatic brain injuries. Dr. Gajar, I've read on the Brain Trauma Foundation website that traumatic brain injuries are the leading cause of death and disability in ages 1 to 44. How big a role do military injuries play in this statistic? Well, I mean, if you look at the civilian population, obviously it overshadows the 1.5 million military population. But what happens, I mean, in, if you look, but you look at the age groups involved, obviously the concentration of the 18 to 30-year-old group is very heavy in the military. So, and if you look at the proportion of males to females, usually it's about 3 to 1 in terms of traumatic brain injury. So it, it represents sort of a concentration of a population that's vulnerable to traumatic brain injury. And how involved is the military in research for this device? Well, the military is very involved with trying to prevent injury and also with treating injury. A lot of our medical advances, especially in trauma care, occur during or after wars. So a lot of the, a lot of the resuscitation efforts that came out of Vietnam and the Korean War are used in our civilian population. So a lot of the things that the military goes through in a war come to benefit the civilian sector. And tell us about the research process for this device, and where were we in the same area, let's say, five to ten years ago? Well, five to ten years ago, I think for looking at concussion, it was really a problem because we didn't understand the nature of attention. And I think cognitive neuroscience has moved forward now so that we understand more about how the brain works. I think that the old thinking was, well, the front part was the captain did everything, the prefrontal cortex, and now we think of the brain as more of a connected organ. It's connectivity. It's different areas working together to produce function. And essentially, the brain is is in a predictive state. We're always predicting what's going to happen next. In fact, there's a lot of papers out saying, you know, we put you in an fMRI scanner and can tell whether you're going to get the answer right or not before you even say the answer. It's not just arousal. It's not just how alert you are. It's really the process of paying attention. So the better you're able to be in a predictive state, to be able to predict what's going to happen next, the better you're able to perform. Right now, is the optimal way to determine the level of attention by cognitive function or by advances in technology, such as eye-tracking devices and the specialized MRIs you mentioned? Well, the problem is that attention has a lot of different aspects to it. I mean, sustained attention, selective attention, there's a lot of different terms about attention. And the standard that's being used right now is a battery of neuropsychological tests that look at a bunch of different functions. What we're really interested in is how well you maintain a predictive brain state. And that's what the variability analysis does. How much jitter do you have? And there's also a lot of research that's been done on the cerebellum, which which a lot of people remember from their anatomy classes and 
and neuroscience classes in medical school was purported to just control movement, and that if you had a cerebral lesion, you became wobbly, you had variability in your movement. But they found recently in the last research in the last five, six years is that the cerebellum is not only connected to motor pathways, but also to cognitive pathways. So the cerebellum involved the term dysmetry of thought or thinking has been advocated. So that the cerebellum is involved in some kind of timing function to decrease variability in both movement and cognition. And so it really gets into the whole, the whole aspect is your brain is built to interact. And to be able to interact, you have to be ahead. I mean, if you just look at the brain as being a serial processor and that information comes in, you process it, and then you react, you'd be dead. I mean, you wouldn't be able to interact because things happen very quickly. So you have to actually expect what's going to happen, get ahead of it, and then interact in that, in that space. Well, how do you differentiate between attention deficits involved with concussion and fatigue versus someone who just is not terribly interested? Well, that's a very good question. I mean, you have to have intention. This is, this is a major problem with any attention test is that you sort of catch-22. You have to pay attention to be able to do the test. But what we're finding is on this eye movement test is that it's actually, since you're tracking an object going around in a predictable space, that you can pick up moment-to-moment changes in attention, and you can diagnose different things. Now, this this grant we're getting right now is actually to differentiate mild traumatic brain injury from fatigue and from aging. So as you get older, if you look at variability as a function of age, what happens is your variability is the lowest when you're in your mid to late 20s. And what happens is as a younger age, you have higher variability, and as you get older, it goes up again, although some people can compensate and look pretty good but they're compensating. So the 25-year-old can multitask because their variability is low, and so they can add a lot of tasks, and the, and the variability rises a little bit as you add more and more attention-loading tasks, but they're able to multitask because their performance remains the same. But as we get older, what happens is we, have to, we compensate, and so that compensation causes more variability, and we only can concentrate on one task at a time. But the separation, what really the problem right now for the military and for the civilian sector for that problem is, is what is attention and can we measure attention accurately and quickly? The problem with, it, with the, the old test that we had was that you took this battery of neuropsychological tests, which, added, which took hours to do, and the fastest one's 30 minutes, and you get some kind of feeling about how good a person's attention is. But we know attention changes from moment to moment, so we have to have a much faster way of doing it, this eye-tracking test, is a very quick way of measuring attention. At the point of, okay, well, now we know we've got a person's got an attention problem, then going and diagnosing whether this is attention deficit or if it's fatigue or it's a matter of somebody's old and so on, those kinds of things we're working on right now with the Army to try and distinguish. But, I mean, the most immediate thing is I want to know how good or how well somebody can pay attention right now. We'll figure out the cause later. Because if you have somebody... You know, like you're going to send somebody into a situation where they have a possibility of getting an injury. You don't want to send somebody in who's got poor attention. If you have just joined us, you are listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM157. I am your host, Dr. Mark Nolan Hill, and with me is Dr. Jam Gajar, Clinical Professor of Neurologic Surgery at Weill Cornell Medical College and President of the Brain Trauma Foundation. We are discussing influences on improving prognoses for traumatic brain injuries. 
Dr. Gajar, how far away are we from actually having this device in hand? We're funded to develop this within four years, although the military is very interested in getting this out as soon as possible, and we're trying our best to, to get this out, hopefully as a prototype, within the year. And I think that it's going to find great utility not only in diagnosing concussion, but diagnosing fatigue and attention problems. Do you think that it will be also used in non-wartime settings? Absolutely. I think, I think in the emergency rooms for primary care physicians who want to use it to see if a person has a problem with attention after a mild traumatic brain injury would be extremely useful. I think it would be even more useful for in situations where somebody's putting themselves at risk and you don't know how good their attention is. It would be extremely valuable. Well, do you think that this would preclude having to get a CAT scan on minor injuries, or this would just be a supplement like a FAST exam is done in trauma? I'm on the Guidelines Committee for the American College of Emergency Physicians Guideline Committee on Mild Traumatic Brain Injury. So they're, they're coming out with their own recommendations on what the indications are for getting a CT scan for somebody who has a mild TBI. So I'd encourage your listeners to go to ASEP's website and get the information on the new guidelines for mild traumatic brain injury. Are there certain symptoms that either in wartime or non-wartime that patients would have that would preclude the use of this device as an assessment tool? Well, yeah. I mean, I think if they have direct eye injury, for instance, they're not going to be able to, to look at something. But however, like I was saying, the only reason we're focusing on variability of eye movements is because we can get a lot more data per unit time. So it takes a lot shorter time. But this also can be done with tapping. So we've done a lot of research on looking at variability of tapping as an indicator of how well you pay attention. And the, and the data seems to follow what we have for eye tracking. So theoretically, we could, somebody has an eye damage and has problems with their visual system and can't actually focus on a dot going around a circle, then we can look at tapping. Has your organization, the Brain Trauma Foundation, worked extensively with the Department of Defense on other military-related projects? We developed the combat guidelines with the military a few years ago. And so it was a request to the military because we, we do the National Civilian Traumatic Brain Injury Guidelines, and they asked us to develop with the Defense Veterans, DVBIC, the Defense Veterans Brain Injury Center, to develop combat guidelines for resuscitation in the field. And we did that with the military. So this is not the first time we've done work with the military. And Dr. Kajar, how did you personally get involved specifically with this? Well, what happened was we've been doing this research in the civilian sector with concussion. And then the reports came out, you know, that everyone read in the newspaper about the troops coming back from Baghdad with tremendous, I mean, up to 30% incidence of mild traumatic brain injury. And the lack of proper diagnosis and treatment that was fraught throughout the system. And we'd already done the research on the civilians, and we had the data and the publications showing that even a mild traumatic brain injury, you can get shearing of these white matter tracts that produce attention and memory deficits. And the eye tracking, we published articles showing that it was a very good metric of attention and working memory difficulties. So we approached the military and said, we can help you out. And then Congress funded the military to do research on TBI and post-traumatic stress disorder. And we applied along with a lot of other people in a peer-reviewed process, and we got selected. So this wasn't the military contract. They didn't come to us and said, you know, give us a proposal and, and we'll pay you. We went up against 70 other groups in this advanced technology proposal, and we got selected. Seems like a daunting task. 
It's a lot of work, and obviously we had to have some very good science behind us to do this. We'd obviously done a lot of work in, in the civilian sector. We were funded by the McDonald Foundation, and the combination of the good science and the practicality or usefulness of this device gave us the grant. I think, I think one thing that we're focused here on the Brain Trauma Foundation is producing useful results that result in reduced morbidity and mortality for traumatic brain injury. I want to thank our guest, Dr. Jam Kajar. We've been discussing influences on improving prognoses for traumatic brain injuries. I'm Dr. Mark Nolan Hill, and you have been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. Be sure to visit our website at ReachMD.com, now featuring on-demand podcasts of our entire library. For comments and questions, please call us toll-free at 888-MDXM-157. And thank you for listening.